I want to talk to you this morning about being a lion. And I read a story once about a man who just loved hunting. He read everything there was to know about hunting. He got every magazine having to do with hunting. He would spend his entire vacation and plan out his entire year about where he was going to go hunting next. He loved hunting so much that he built an extra room onto his house to put his trophy animals in that he can go and just and look at his animals and, and just remember the, the great times that he had out there and, and hunting and doing those kind of things out in the wilderness. And after several years of hunting locally here in North America, a little bit in Canada, he picked up a magazine that spoke about the ultimate kind of hunting, and that was hunting lions in Africa. He immediately fell in love with the, with the idea, so he decided to start saving up his money for a ticket to Tanzania where he could go and hunt the largest game, which was the African lion. It was going to be a once-in-a-lifetime hunting trip for him, and so he sacrificed. He worked overtime and missed all the other local hunting seasons so he could have his dream of going to Africa and hunting the world's most dangerous animal. And finally, he's able to book the trip. He finds a local guide that would guarantee him, I will find you a lion that you can hunt. And so they got into the Jeep early in the morning, and they went out into the bush, and they found a small hill that they could sit on and observe the plains for lions to come out and feed in the morning. And suddenly, the man heard his, his guide gasp. And he looked to where his guide was looking, and about 200 yards away, he sees this large lion coming out of the bush. The biggest lion he has ever seen. And so he's like, oh my gosh. And, and he grabs his rifle, and he starts to bring it up, and he's starting to sight it in, and then take aim at this lion, and his, his guide reaches over and pushes his barrel down and says, you cannot shoot this lion. You can't take a shot at this lion. And the man was stunned. This lion is the biggest thing he's ever seen. He's thinking about how this is going to look in his trophy room. He's got the best rifle. He's got the best scope. He's got the best ammunition. He saved and saved and saved for the, this one shot at this lion. And the guy immediately holds a finger to his lips and then holds a finger to his lips and says, Be very quiet. Be very, very quiet. And after a while, they watched the lion walk back into the bush and into the jungle. And then the man angrily turns to his, his guide. He said, do you know how much I've had to save? Do you know how much I've had to sacrifice? That was the biggest lion I've ever even seen. It's the biggest lion I've ever even heard of. And you wouldn't let me take a shot at that. And the guide told him, you don't understand. That was an old lion. And he said, what difference does it make how old it was? He said, listen. If you had taken a shot at this lion, we would both be dead right now. It doesn't matter where you hit it. It doesn't matter if you hit it in the heart or the lungs. He would still have enough strength to run us down and tear us to shreds. You see, when a young lion is injured, he'll run away. He'll run away from that pain. But there's something with old lions that you need to understand. And that is an old lion somehow knows that his time is almost up. He almost knows that for him, the hunt and the thrill of the kill is almost over. That his abilities to have that kind of experience is almost gone. So if he is injured, if, if he is fe feeling like his life is threatened, he will turn and spend his last breath to know that thrill one more time.
Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 14. This story that I told you is a very accurate description of the man that we're going to examine this morning. We spoke a little bit about Caleb last week when he was in his 40s and still in the prime of his life. But now, Caleb is 85 years old. 85 years old. The enemies of Israel have largely been defeated in the promised land that God has given them. And that, but there are still a few left to conquer. Caleb, at this moment in his life, he's 85 years old. He has every right to kind of tell people, he said, look, I'm 85 years old. I've done my duty. I've ran my race. I've kept the faith. I've done this for over 45 years with you people in the desert. It's time for me to find a nice house. It's time for me to find a rocking chair, bounce some grandkids on my knee, and just look forward to retirement and to the time that I get to meet God face to face. But that's not the man that we're going to look at here this morning. This man had the heart of a lion and a heart that pleased God. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gijo. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenzanite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brother who, brothers who went up with me made, their heart, made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land in which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he sent this, said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am as still as strong today as when Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You have heard then that the Anakites were there and that their cities were large and fortified. But, the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. And Father God, I ask, Lord, as we study your word today, that you would give us a heart that is not given to fear. That you would give us a heart of a lion, a heart that trusts in you, a heart that realizes, realizes that you are with us, and that if you are with us, who can be against us? Father God, do this within us today. In your name and for your glory, amen. I have a lot of admiration for some of the heroes of our faith that we read about in the Bible, but Caleb is one of my favorites. Caleb's story was the reason I kind of came up with this whole Heroes of the Faith series. And one of the reasons that he's my hero is he scorned a rocking chair. 
He looked at that thing and thought it was useless. He didn't want it easy. No matter how old he was, no matter how people may have looked at him, he did not want it easy. He still wanted at 85 years old to do exploits for his God. And God has a special place in his heart for people who desire to do great things in his name. People who are ready to face the giants. People who are really willing to fight the good fight no matter what the cost. People that have that heart of a lion. People that have it within them to say, greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. And that person that lives within me, that God that takes up residence in my spirit, has, is a lion. He is a lion of the tribe of Judah. And therefore, since I believe that, I have a lion's heart beating in my chest. And that's Caleb. He's at that place in life where most people are looking for a retirement village to move into. He looks in at TV and they have those great golf course resorts in Florida that they want you to move to and retire to. He didn't watch those commercials. He shut the TV off. That was not him. Caleb's time to go into eternity may have been near or may have been near, but he was going out with a roar and not a whimper. I like that kind of attitude. And Caleb's attitude reminds me of one of my favorite all-time poems. I love poetry. I love reading the hard stuff, the stuff that most people look at and go, ugh, I don't want to read that stuff. I like reading that because it just, it, it, it helps me think of different ways that humanity has kind of looked at God. And I always, even if it was a, a secular poet like we're going to read here, it still makes me um, look at the Bible and, and how we're supposed to be with God. Well, this poem is called Do Not Go Gentle Into the Good Night by Dylan Thomas. And before we get in a little bit further into the meat of this message, I want to read it to you because I think it reflects the heart of this man. And as I read it, ask yourself, does this reflect my heart toward this life? Do not go gentle into that good night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end, no dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their failed deeds might have danced in the green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned to wait, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my Father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That poem to me sums up the heart of Caleb. Even during the times of the patriarchs, even during this Old Testament time, 85 years old was pretty old. Remember, Abraham was 80, 80 when God made him a promise to give him a son, and his wife and him laughed at that idea. Joshua was about the same age as Caleb, and later on in Joshua, it's, God looks at Joshua and says, you know what, you're very old. 
You know you're old if God's calling you old. Caleb is this age. Caleb might have still been in excellent shape, but stop for a moment and think about what he's asking for. It's outrageous. It would be outrageous for a ranger platoon in the top condition in their 20s in today's army to ask for this task that he is asking for. Caleb is asking for the hill country. He's asking to fight an uphill battle, an unstable footing against enemies that held the high ground in massive cities. Not only does he want the hill country, not only is he asking to fight this uphill battle, Caleb is asking to take on the giants, men who are hardened, fierce warriors that were seven to eight feet tall on the most difficult terrain in the promised land. And that's where you see the heart of this man. Seeing all these possible obstacles, Caleb had this thought, if God be for me, who can be against me? He had that lion's heart. He had that heart that trusted in God. But why is this important to us? Is this just an interesting character study for us? No. This is important because we are living in the last days. We're living in a time that it requires us to be bold in our faith. And can I give it to you straight? Can I just be honest with you just for a moment? If you are a wimpy Christian, you're not going to make it. The time is getting too short in heading toward the tribulation time for you to be a wimpy Christian, for you to be a part-time believer, for you to be just a Sunday morning for a couple hours Christians. It's all in time in the kingdom right now. If you will not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So, how can we learn from studying the life of Caleb to have the heart that he did, that heart of a lion that roars at, at the world that he lives in? And what made him roar all the louder, even at age 85? What was, him about, uh, what was it about Caleb that God blessed so greatly? And what made him different in a nation that was used to seeing the wonders of God in all of his power and his glory, every single day during their desert time, but they still never believed in God's ability to do the impossible, even though they saw it every day. What made him different in that he saw it? Well, the first thing is that Caleb lost the slave mentality. When we talk about Caleb, and, or Joshua, but Caleb especially, we have to remember he was born as a slave. His parents were born as slaves. His grandparents were born as slaves. His great-grandparents were born as slaves. Up until he was in his 30s, all he knew was the life of slavery. He, along with everyone else around him, was born into a slave mentality. Now, what would you call a slave mentality? In the spiritual sense, it's a need for something that is ultimately destructive to you. But you think you need it. You see, for the Christian, it's what we call your besetting sin. It's that sin that you always seem to run back to when the going gets tough. 
It's that invisible chain that binds you to your past, binds you to your past lifestyle, binds you to all those things you used to enjoy before you came to know Christ. And you run back to that for comfort instead of running to God. And it's, it's this chain and this shackle and this refusal to let God deal with it in our lives. And that is what is killing the American church. Let me give you an example of a slave mentality for, from Caleb's life that he saw firsthand almost every single day wandering through the 40 years in the desert. Now when Israel is walking in circles in the, in the desert of Sinai, every single time things got a little tough, what did the people start to do? Murmur. Murmur. They started to complain. Moses! Moses, we don't have any water! We don't have any water! Why didn't you lead us out of Egypt? We had all the water we needed. Or Moses, we don't have any bread. What are we supposed to eat? What are we supposed to eat? These rocks? I mean, in Egypt, we had all kinds of food. I mean, Moses, what's with all this bread? We have way too much bread. Why can't we have any meat? Moses, we don't have any water again. Moses, where's God? Where's God in all this? Why are we coming out from this? Why did you lead us out here to die? Oh, Moses, you don't understand. We had it so good in Egypt. We had houses to live in. We had job security. We were happy there. The Egyptians took such good care of us and they fed us and they just were so nice to us. Isn't it amazing how sin can cloud our vision and wipe away the memory of the bad? It creates a spiritual amnesia within us about the horrible consequences of what our spiritual slavery really looked like. You see, in their, in their memory of Egypt, the people, they forgot the whip. They forgot the murder of their children. They forgot the brutal treatment that they had to endure every single day of their life at the hands of their overseers. And that's the danger. It's the lie that we believe over and over and over again in our lives. That when the devil is tempting us toward that besetting sin, that this thing that God said, for our own good, by the way, that it's forbidden, that somehow this thing will bring us a pleasure or bring us a comfort or bring us a sense of peace and fulfillment that God himself could not possibly give us. That's the danger. Did God really say? Satan hasn't changed his tactics all that much. We're like children who, if you found your, your toddler child crawling around on the floor and somehow they got a hold of rat poison and they're trying to eat it, and they want this rat poison. They think that this rat poison is going to give them everything you need. And you're trying to take it away from them. And the kid's going, you know, like kids do. And they're trying to keep it out of you. And you're wrestling with this kid to get the rat poison away from them. And that's how we are with our sin with God. Like, no, God, it's, it's back here. It's not there, honest. It's not there. And we do this. And that's the insidiousness of besetting sin. That thing you run to when, thing, when life gets a little tough. And the problem with it is that it will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your usefulness in the kingdom. In the end, it could rob, rob you of your eternal reward or even heaven itself. And it will definitely strip away God's favor from your life. 
most importantly, for our purposes here, it will create enough fear in your heart that you can ever forget having a heart of a lion that you're going to need to live in these last days. For Israel, their besetting sin, besides spiritual amnesia, it was comfort. It was security. It was the knowledge that somebody was going to take care of everything for them, even if it came with a very brutal cost. In other words, it created a spiritual cowardly mindset in their lives. They refused to face the truth that it was their slave mindset that was crippling them. And that's why they forgot the chains. We do the same thing in our lives, though. We run to things that will give us a few moments of pleasure, and we forget the scourge of guilt's whip. We ignore the chafing of the shackles on our ankles and our minds as the Holy Spirit tries to bring conviction to us. We forfeit the peace that God promises for us by looking for it apart from Him. And you think, well, I don't have a slave mentality. Pastor John, that must be somebody else. Maybe somebody will listen to the podcast and that'll be them. I don't have that. Well, I ask you, think for a moment of what the last time that something hard came up in your life. Maybe your car didn't start. Turn the key, nothing happens. Had it happen to me yesterday morning, actually. Turn the key, nothing happens, and I'm stuck in Black River Falls. I could have gotten out and I could have whined, could have cussed at it, kicked the tire a few times, thrown something at the car, complain and call it bad luck. It's like, God, don't you know I want to get back home right away because we're having a practice burn at the fire department and I want to get in there and get in the fire and do all that, that cool, fun stuff. Yes, I'm weird. I think fun is running into a burning building. Don't ask. Um, you know, I'm thinking of all this stuff, but you know, I just kind of said, okay, God. Or maybe your boss was mean, so you gossip behind their back. Or maybe your spouse was crabby and inconsiderate or unavailable to meet your physical or emotional needs. So you complain to your friends, you turn to a romance novel, or maybe even pornography or an illicit relationship, either online or otherwise. And because you're so wrapped up in your own misery, because you're so wrapped up in this false slave mentality mindset that you have, you don't hear the sound in the spirit going click, 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 the sound of Satan's handcuffs ratcheting in. Click, click. Click. They're getting tighter around your heart, around your mind, and around your soul. Click, click, click. And you know about the worst thing about this slavery mindset? At first, you resent the chain. The first time Satan tries to throw a chain on you, you kick it off and say, In the name of Jesus, be gone. You try to kick it away. But Satan keeps coming. He doesn't just do it once and leave. He keeps coming. He knows time's on his side, and he fights dirty. He doesn't know how to fight clean. Sooner or later, he knows that some stress will cause you to run back to it. He knows. And after a while, you get used to it, and it doesn't bother you so much. You rationalize the need for this chain in your life. It's only once in a while. 
God's merciful, God's gracious, God knows that I'm going to do this. And he saved me anyway, so I can, I, can, I can do this. He doesn't mind just a little bit of compromise. A little bit of worldliness isn't that bad, is it? And then you learn to compartmentalize it. You learn to, to stuff it back into the, the dark recesses of your mind and pull it out only when nobody else is around. You become like a spiritual drug addict. And that's when the enemy has you. You can't live without this thing. That shackle is tight, it's locked in, and you can't break free of it. But I have good news for you. Jesus can. There is not a lock that Satan has created that Jesus doesn't have the key to. However, when you get in this far, when you get locked in and addicted to this sin, the only way that this chain is forever broken is for that sin to be dragged out into the light. This chain is like a spiritual vampire sucking the life out of you, sucking the, the spiritual vitality of you, sucking out any hope that you have for being useful for God. And only the daylight can totally destroy it. But our fear of, our, of discovery, our pride in thinking that we can control it, and our unbelief will, will make us keep this hidden to keep us in chains. If you go swimming this summer and a leech attaches itself to you, do you look at the leech and try to negotiate with it? Just a little bit of blood? Just a little bit of time on my skin and it'll be okay? No. You rip that thing off and you crush it underneath your feet. And that is how you deal with Satan. I'm not going to lie to you. It's a painful experience when you have to get that far. It's much better just to repent of things immediately and walk away. But if you get to this point, it's going to be a painful experience for you. I'm not going to lie to you. It's happened in my life a few times. However, I can also stand here and tell you that no matter how much pain you went through during that time, the peace and the presence of God on the other side of it, it's worth it. Now I have a more eternal I try to have a more eternal perspective with this in that I ask myself, is this sin I'm being tempted to do going to matter in a billion years if I'm in heaven or hell? That if I experience this right now. That's kind of how I think of things now. And I know as a person who has gone through surgery that no surgery feels good at the time or even in the immediate recovery time after you wake up and you're in all that pain. But eventually you heal, and having your body working the way it's supposed to work is worth that pain. Same thing with your spirit. It's worth the pain now than having the pain later. It's better to bring it out on your terms and say, God, I need you to take this from me. And maybe I need to confess this to somebody. Maybe I need some help with this, some spiritual health with this, and, and, and come into accountability with somebody than it is for something to get publicly plastered all over the place. How many people do we know have had that happen to them? Do you think God just like took them from, they did it once and then threw it all over the place? No. The devil let them get to the point of where they're addicted to something now, and then he had them, and that's when it went public, where it could do the maximum damage for the kingdom. Don't let it get to that point in your life, and if you're at that point, please come and talk to me. There is no judgment for me because I've probably done it myself at some point. 
you need to let Jesus do some surgery. Just like you wouldn't presume to tell a surgeon that his technique is wrong. I think that's why we knock people out during a surgery, because all of us would tell him he's probably doing it wrong. We want, you can't really presume to tell Jesus how to heal you. And in the end, after the healing, you will stand back and be amazed that you didn't do this sooner. And Caleb did all this in his life. When he met with God at Mount Sinai, he entered the fire of God's presence. He held himself in that fire until the light of God's presence and his glory burned away the slavery of his past life. And because of that, we will come to the next thing that will give you a heart of a lion. And that is, he had a different spirit. First mention of Caleb in the Bible is about talking about the spies that went and saw the promised land. Twelve people went. Twelve people saw the same things, experienced the same things, ate the same food, walked the same path, had everything in common until they got back to give their report to Moses and the people. Ten people said, yes, this is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, this is indeed a wonderful place to live. But there are giants there. But the cities are well fortified. But there are savage people there that there is no way we can beat. And those ten men ruined that spiritual destiny of six million people. And they led the entire nation in fear, doubt, and unbelief. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Joshua stood with Caleb, but Caleb is the one who spoke and tried to convince the nation that God is more powerful than anything that is within that land. He is powerful enough to bring this promise to us in his timing and in his way. And Caleb had that understanding that if God be for me, who can be against me? If I am... If I am in the will of the Almighty God, then the Almighty God will use all of his power, all of his might, all of his strength, all of his resources to bring about which he has promised me by covenant. God recognized that in Caleb. And the Bible records God saying that Caleb has a different spirit and he follows me wholeheartedly. And therefore I will bring him into the land that he went to and his descendants will inherit him. All of Israel saw God at Sinai. Seventy of the elders came near and saw God and experienced as much of God as any man could at this side of eternity, including these twelve men that were sent out as spies. But only two of these twelve actually experienced God. Only two of these twelve dwelt in that fire to have all that other stuff burned away. And the spiritual chains of their slavery was able to be burned away from them. Do you want a different spirit? Do you need to let the fire of God's Holy Spirit burn away the chains of your slavery to sin? Because if you don't, if you don't allow God to do this, you're leaving the doors and windows of your spirit wide open for the thief to come to steal, to kill, and destroy you will remain in a perpetual cycle of sin, shame, guilt, regret, false repentance, and back to the sin. 
And that's why you need the fire of God in your life to destroy these chains. The same fire that had that heart of a lion within Caleb. This is one of the main differences between a Pentecostal Christian and the rest of Christianity. I'm not necessarily saying we're better, but we seek the fire of God. And as one of our heritage songs says, to burn up every trace of sin, to bring the light of glory in. The revolution now begin. Send the fire today, God. And if you are sick of chains in your spirit, if the devil seems to have that open door into your mind and your soul, I beg of you to seek the fire of God. You need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We'll have some time of prayer about that at the end of service. And because Caleb had this fire of God within him, he was able to shake off this slavery mindset. And because he allowed the fire of God to give him that different spirit, Caleb was able to really know his God. Caleb lived through one of the most dynamic times in Israel's history. Caleb remembered everything that God had done for Israel. And he reasoned that if God did it then, he can still do it now. And he was witness to the greatest events ever recorded in Israel's history. Just think of some of the things that Caleb was able to look back on and remember that God did by his power for his nation and for him. Excuse me. He saw the end of Israel's slavery. 400 years of slavery came to an end. Ten generations of Israelites didn't know anything about freedom. They thought that God had forgotten them or something, and they had resigned themselves to this life of slavery. But God remembers his promise. And Caleb remembered that God remembers his promises. He that began a good work in you will bring it to completion for his name's sake. God remembers this in individuals. He remembers this in a people group. He remembers this even in churches. He will bring it to completion, not for our sakes, for his sake, because he is the one that promised. Caleb got to see the end of Egypt as a world power. Think about everything that happened to Egypt during the Exodus. They have no food. Every single ounce of food in Egypt has been destroyed. Whether it was in a storehouse or out in the field, it's been wiped out. Their livestock is sick or it's dead. They've had so many plagues visit their people that most of them are weak or they're dying of these plagues. Their water supply is blood. An entire generation of their firstborn children are dead, and the majority of their military might is sitting on the bottom of the Red Sea. That empire, at the time of Moses, in the time of the Exodus, before they left, existed all the way to Libya, all through Turkey. They had influence all through that entire area, the entire recorded known world at that time one of the largest empires that has ever existed. And it was brought to ruin by the God that Caleb knew and the God that Caleb served. That God that Caleb knew and served kept his promise to his man and to his nation and to Caleb. Caleb got to see the promised land. And Caleb got there when he was 80 years old. 
Caleb fought from the time he was 80 until he was, time, until he was 85 against all these powerful nations that existed in the promised land at the time until it was all subdued except for his inheritance. And that's why I admire him so much. Most people, you know, if, 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 you, if we were going to go as a group and fight and, and take a land, we'd want to kind of secretly make sure that our chunk of that land was the first one we went into, isn't it? We want to make sure our inheritance is the one. Caleb didn't do that. He waited till last. He saved the hardest part till last. He saved his portion until last. He said, let me make sure that my brethren are safe first. And then I'll worry about my future because my future is in God's hands. I don't have to worry about it. God has promised it and therefore it is amen. I can go and fight somebody else's battle for him. That's a man. That's a man with a lion's heart. That's a man with the heart of Jesus. Because isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus forsake everything. He didn't have to come down off his throne and save us, but he did it. He said, I will forsake my comfort. I'll forsake my, my holiness and, and all my awesomeness as God. I will humble myself and become as a man and make sure that my people are taken care of, that they can come into their inheritance first. That's the heart of Jesus. And the final thing that marks the heart of a lion is that Caleb provided for and passed on God's favor to his children. We get to the point in Joshua where they're starting to divide out all the land. And Caleb's daughter goes to him with a bold request. In Joshua 15, verse 18, it said, One day when Akshah, which is Caleb's daughter, went to Athenio, her husband, she urged him to ask her father for a field. So she went to him, and she got off her donkey, and Caleb asked, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, also give me the springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs. Caleb is coming to his inheritance. He's fought his uphill battle against the giants, and he's defeated them. He was enjoying the fruit of his labor, as we should. But he did not let the fruit of his labor rule over him. Caleb knew that everything that he had right now came from God. He knew God is his provider. He knew God's favor was upon him, and he was willing to share of his blessing and his provision to share the favor of God with others. And if you think about it, his daughter's request was a very bold one. She didn't ask for something in the back 40. She didn't ask for, you know, we have this, this huge estate that's all beautiful except for this chunk back here that's still overgrown. We haven't taken it. She didn't ask for that part. She asked for the mansion. She asked for the biggest part. And Caleb said, okay, you can have it. It's yours. It wasn't mine to begin with. Because it wasn't me that won this. It was God because I could not have done it without him. Jennifer and Tammy, if you'd come back up, please. That's the key to having a heart of a lion. We think that we have to do something within ourselves. We think that we have to somehow transform ourselves and give ourselves and, and, and get us all jazzed up into to having this heart of a lion. But that's not the answer. It's allowing him, who is brave and courageous, 
to come and live within us and letting his lion heart live within us. And that is when you can say, great with absolute faith, by the way, and not just spout it out as a, some biblical platitude, but you can say with absolute faith that greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. Amen. Losing the slave mentality, having a different spirit, really knowing your God and passing these lessons and these blessings and provision on to the next generation, that is how you live the life of a lion. That is how you have a heart that is pleasing for God. And that will give you the ability to do exploits for your kingdom so that someday when you stand before him, you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Father God, we thank you. Let's all.